This is the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Tuesday and March is almost over. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions, church questions, life questions, whatever's on your heart and mind. All we need you to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340 340- 9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email your questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Well, we have nothing to talk about today. I will remind you of our Good Friday service, a very special service here at Calvary Chapel, uh, this coming Friday at 7 o'clock. And then Easter and praying everybody has a great Easter service. I don't think I'll get to it today, but I've got a question about why Easter is so important this year or more important than in years past. So hopefully I'll get to that sometime this week, just not today. Here's the first question while we wait your phone calls. Frank says, um, Pastor Ron, Pastor Ron, can a pastor who teaches that someone can lose their salvation be a true believer? Uh, same question for other doctrinal issues. You know, Frank, the truth is there's going to be a lot of people in uh, heaven um, whose doctrine was messed up. We've got to, we've got to understand that. God looks at the heart. Um, God knows people, uh, obviously knows if we're wrong. Uh, I think we're going to find that everybody has some error in their doctrinal positions. But when we get to a place where we're judging somebody as a non-believer, simply because they teach one thing that you strongly disagree with. Now, as you know, Frank, if you've been listening to this program, um, I believe that when, and teach very, very clearly, that when God guarantees your inheritance by giving us the Holy Spirit as a deposit, when we get saved, the Spirit of God comes to, to live in us. Um, the Bible says, Ephesians chapter 1 says that that guarantees our inheritance. Now, if God is the one who's guaranteeing it, that's a pretty strong guarantee. So I, there's no way you can lose it. Um, uh, Jesus said, I've lost none that you've given me. 
in in his conversation with his father just before he went to the cross. So uh, I, I, as strongly as I feel about that, and as much as I believe God wants us to feel secure, I actually think, Frank, it breaks God's heart when Christians question their salvation. I know the enemy's lying. I know there's doubt. But when Christians, especially those who are teaching pastors, and they doubt salvation is secure, I think that breaks Jesus' heart. It's almost like I can almost hear him say, what more do I have to do to, to make you believe that what I said is true? Uh, and yet, that doesn't disqualify anybody from heaven. We have to understand that. The, 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 again, I'm sure, I, I hope I'm not, but I'm sure I've got some doctrinal issues wrong. And I'm as saved as I can be. Uh, I think for the pastor who teaches that uh, the Arminian side of the Calvinist equation, um, I, I believe you can lose your salvation. I believe you can give it away. You can walk away from it. Um, man, I, I don't know that Jesus. I just don't know that Jesus. And it causes me to hurt. It causes me to shake my head at them. But uh, it doesn't cause me ever to doubt their salvation. That is an orthodox Christian position. It's wrong. I want to say that clearly. It's wrong, but it is an orthodox Christian uh, tradition, and and, uh, I believe with all of my heart that um, there are real believers who are teaching the wrong thing in this issue of once saved, always saved. Now, we've got some reasons, Frank, and I'm going to expand a little bit just because we've got nobody waiting on the phone call. When we come to the second part of that half of the program, I'm going to take a few minutes to talk about Jesus' Passion Week. But um, uh, I think with all of my heart that if we take the Bible for what it says, not what we want it to say, not what some systematic theology demands that it says, if we take it for what it says, then we come up to healthy positions. And I think, as I've said on this program many, many times, the extremes are the dangerous positions. I think uh, Calvinism is a fruit killer. Uh, I think Arminianism is a um, uh, a fruit killer. Uh, I, I think it's 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 a, it's it's far more a lack of faith to be an Armenian than it is to be a Calvinist. But I also think that we've got to get to a place where we understand the balance that comes from the heart of God. We have to avoid the extremes. We have to find our doctrinal comfort in those areas that are codified by his nature, by his character. And um, Frank, while it hurts my heart when I hear somebody teach that, I know the the enemy is pounding people all the time about doubting their salvation. It's the one thing that he really wants us to doubt. Did God really say? Uh, And and so I realize how that feeds into our fears, and I realize how the enemy fans the flames. But we've got to decide as believers, do we really believe what the Bible says? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Do we believe that? 
Jesus, the Gospel of John says, holds us in his hands. The Father, he says, who's greater than he, has us in his hands. Do we really believe that? No one can snatch us away. Do we really believe that? And I don't think the answer to that question, um, as often as I would hope it would be, is yes, we really believe it. We Christians say, yeah, I believe it, but... So I hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to San Marcos, Texas, and talk with Horatio on line one. Horatio, thank you for calling. You are on the air. Yes, sir. Do you have a, a book that talks about the prophecies as far as that have occurred and that would occur? Do you have any titles that I can maybe buy? Oh, wow. Um, off the top of my head, I, I can't think of any. Uh, but let me, let me tell you uh, to read the book of Daniel. We talked about that in the program yesterday, Horatio. And um, you know, when, yeah, when you read Daniel and and get a good commentary in Daniel, and and while I'm not suggesting my commentary is good or better than anybody else's, you go to our website at calvaryessay.com and get my commentary. I've written it, uh, having taught through the Book of Daniel twice. Um, there is so much there about. Uh, prophecies fulfilled and unfulfilled. I just not too recently, I think it was late last year, it was a whole year study, but we went through the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah, when you get to chapter 60, everything is future from that point. And so uh, it gives you the opportunity to see these are the prophecies that have been fulfilled. And and I'm going to throw out a dumb number. I don't know how true it is, but it seems to me like 90% of the prophecies uh, that you read about from the Old Testament prophets have been fulfilled precisely the way God said they would. The 10% or so that are remaining, um, they are yet to be fulfilled. And I, I think the best way for me to put this uh, Horatio is all of the prophecies dealing with the day of the Lord. That's the, the, the great tribulation and beyond. Those are as now unfulfilled. Those are still yet future. The other prophecies, Jesus' first advent to this earth, um, the, the nation of Israel and, and the, the prophecies that have been fulfilled there, uh, dry bones in, in Jeremiah, um, uh, 1948 Israel, uh, coming to life again as a nation, uh, in spite of the fact that no nation in the history of the world has ever come back, no people group has ever come back to their original nation and assimilated again as a nation uh, except Israel, and the answer is because God said that part has been fulfilled, which literally means in 1948 we began the process of walking into the last days. And so I, I think it's just a matter of that. Um, there, There's a great book. Here's one that comes to mind. Things to Come by... Dwight Pentecost. It's it's kind of old Englishy, but it's it's really really good. Uh, Dwight Pentecost, and that really is his name, uh, and it's called Things to Come. That's a great one. I also recommended another one that's older than that, much older than that, but it's called The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson. That is another great book. Uh, one other thing that I can say, Horatio, is that. If if you look for commentators uh, in the book of Revelation in particular, 
who really believed that Israel would be regathered to their homeland, especially those that wrote prior to 1948. Those men had a lot of faith because they they literally took the Bible um, for what it said. Uh, Thomas Newell is one. He's got a great commentary in the book of Revelation. Uh, there's another one by uh, a man named John Walvoord, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D, uh, and his commentary on Revelation uh, and his uh, books on the end times are classics, and they deal with with uh, fulfilled and unfulfilled prophecies. So those are some good ones to get started. Does that help? Uh, yeah, uh, Isaiah sixty and forward, Daniel. Not just chapter six. I wasn't. I didn't. I wasn't clear. Uh, the whole book of Daniel, chapter two, chapter seven, um, and, and then from from chapter nine on, those are prophecies of of things yet unfulfilled. So Daniel, just just all of the book that that doesn't deal with the historical Daniel. Um, his prophecies are are so specific, it's better than you can imagine. Hooray, so thank you for calling. I appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585. Let's go to Converse and talk with Ron online, too. Ron, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Yes, sir. Let me take you. Okay, there we go. How are you doing, Pastor Ron? I'm doing really well, Ron. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Good. I'm glad you are. You deserve it. I just had a question that uh, involved, um, I know of a um, a Baptist Christian minister, has his own flock, his own church, and he's a good man, um, and I, I've seen the pictures and the videos, um, it's just amazing to see a, a, a Baptist minister, preacher, baptizing somebody, and uh, and there's his, his 40 caliber uh, Glock on his um, on his on his waist. Now I can fully understand this. Um, I, I'm not at all at odds with this, considering you know what has happened in the churches within the last year or two. I just wanted to hear your your side. How do you feel, even though you might not arm yourself? What about another Christian Baptist preacher? that does and wears it openly and, you know, even has a plan in, in the flock, you know, in the event something goes terrible, they have a plan of action. Um, I'm, I'm just curious as to how you perceive this, sir. Yeah, thank you, and I'll do that for you. I've, I've actually talked to pastors about this very thing. Let me first say that to, to open carry as a pastor uh, is to uh, put yourself in a position where you're going to cause some of the very people that you love and are trying to protect to stumble. Um, remember, our job is to lead people to Christ. Um, our, our job is to teach the Bible and to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to create disciples. And I think uh, if if I did anything that would cause the attention of the people that I'm teaching uh, to be uh, deflected from that primary mission, I think I would be hurting them. Uh, you know, I tell my pastors, this doesn't have anything to do with a gun, but, but you know, tattoos are real popular now. And, and I tell my, my pastors here that um, every time you cover yourself with more tattoos, 
you're limiting the number of people that you're going to be able to minister to because there are just going to be some, right or wrong is not the issue. The fact is there are just going to be some who say, ah, you know, I'm not going to listen to a guy with that many tattoos. Uh, a gun is um, uh, would strike fear into the hearts of others. Now, I'm not anti-gun at all. I'm not a gun guy, Ron, but I'm not anti-gun at all. Uh, I, I'm also a man that really believes in preparation. So uh, we have a plan if something would happen, if a shooter would come in to Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, I promise you we have a plan um, and and we would be able to limit the amount of damage that that, that that perpetrator could cause. But that plan is not known um, publicly to the church at large because we don't want them to come in here thinking about guns. Now, uh, you know, we're, this is Texas, and, and you know, uh, you said a Baptist church. He's probably a fundamentalist Baptist. But the idea is um, it's our responsibility as pastors to demonstrate that we trust God. I, I've actually been criticized. People said, well, well, I'm sure you have bodyguards. I don't have any bodyguards. We get people in a security ministry here, but believe me, you know, they're not going to be intimidating people. They don't look like security people. And and protecting me is is not their primary concern. So we want to be sure, Ron, that we don't do anything that's going to cause the focus to be lost on Jesus Christ. And for a pastor to be baptizing people or preaching from the pulpit, exercising his Second Amendment right to bear arms, um, I think, uh, frankly, it, it is it is bad form, and I think it it mitigates against the the principal mission that God has given us. Uh, I'm sure he's saved. You said he's a good guy, um, but but you know when we're holding on to our rights instead of just doing what we were tasked by Jesus to do. I think we're beginning to miss the point, and I think that really gets us to a place where we could be difficult um, in terms of, of equipping our people. So, Ron, thank you. That's a very thoughtful question, and I have the opportunity to uh, to share a little bit of my heart with that. Um, let's go to line two from Bernie, Texas. Brian is on the line. Brian, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. How you doing? Got a question for you today. Um, I was at a birthday party yesterday evening, and we were talking to one guy. Was there talking? We were talking about the Old Testament, New Testament, and then he started talking about Leviticus 11 and not eating pork and how what's clean and what's unclean. I'm on the understanding is, you know, when uh, in Acts, when Peter had the dream that everything is clean, and he was like, "No, it's not clean." So. Can you shed some light on, is, is, is Leviticus 11 applied to you know, just the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, or is it still part of the New Covenant that we should follow? Because he, he was quoting Scripture, and I was like, okay, you make sense on it, but I just it's been stirring in my, my spirit. I've been looking up online all day, and I was like, okay, I see 50% say yes, 50% say no. So <laughs> if, you could, if you could clarify and say, yeah, this is, this is what it is, because uh, I trust your understanding and your wisdom and knowledge you have, um, that would be great. I'll hang up now and listen to you on the radio. 
Thanks, Brian. I, I think I can do that. I think I make it simple. Uh, Leviticus, uh, Exodus, um, um, all that was in, I'm, I'm My personal reading currently is in Romans again. And, um, you know, when we Jesus, uh, through Paul, talks about being dead to the law, um, we, we have to have a, a hermeneutic. That's That's a principle of Bible interpretation that allows us to understand the two covenants and separation between them. And it's so simple in Leviticus. Um, uh, you know, we get this from unbelievers. Oh, yeah, you, you, you're going to kill your children if they if they talk back to to their father or or um, you're going to stone somebody if they commit adultery because that's what the law says to do. Well, they don't understand the new versus the old testaments or covenants either. So I think it's just really simple. Uh, Leviticus was God speaking to his people Israel. He owned them. He called them out. They were a peculiar people. And he gave them laws to live by, Brian, that would make them set apart from the nations around them. And one of the things, remember, that Israel in the Exodus wilderness, um, they 40 years, they didn't get sick. They didn't have the diseases of the other nations. God protected them from unclean foods. God protected them all with the desire to make them separate to such a degree that all of the pagan peoples that they encountered would know there was something special about them. The, the Jews, Israel was to be a light in the world in the Old Testament. Christians are to be salt and light in the New Testament. Uh, but, but that was just for Israel. The Ten Commandments say to my people Israel over and over and over. And, and the most basic of hermeneutics is, is find out who the author is talking to, what he's saying, what he intends to say. And if, if God is talking to Israel, we can't assume that he's talking to us. The church isn't Israel, and Israel isn't the church, and we've got to understand that. That's really, really important. Further, when we go into the book of Acts, and there was another place in the Gospels where Jesus declares all foods clean, um, um, when Jesus says to Peter in the book of Acts, rise, kill, and eat, and Peter says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unkind or, or, or unclean or impure, um, Jesus told him, his 15th verse of Acts chapter 10, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So God has made it all clean, and uh, I think that's a pretty authoritative word. So, Brian, it doesn't matter what people think. And here's what I really want everybody to do. I want them to, to study their Bibles, learn how to interpret their Bibles. And typically you're going to find um, those who are, are, are covenant believers. Um, you, you, you're going to find them um, not separating Israel and the church. That's why dispensationalism is so important. You can understand... Uh, with clarity, the differences in commands between uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's people then and God's people now. So, Brian, all food is clean. Uh, honestly, we'd probably all be healthier if we ate using Old Testament guidelines. 
But it's not a matter of religion. It's not a matter of morality. It's simply a matter, well, we'd probably be healthier if we didn't eat a bunch of pork. Um, but honestly, i got to tell you, Brian, I love bacon. <laughs> and so I'm not going to stop eating it. And I'm grateful. I always laugh, Brian, because I think of... of uh, Peter, when Jesus said, rise, kill, and eat, and he protests, no, I'm kosher, and and, and, and Jesus says, don't call anything uh, unclean that I've made clean. And I just, I, I think in my mind about Peter taking the first bite of a bacon sandwich for the very first time. Thinking, what have I been missing all this time? But But there's no right nor wrong. Having said that, we all have the freedom to eat what we want. So if the people that you're talking to are stumbled by eating pork, they don't have to eat it. But if you want to enjoy it, you can do that. Lobster. And lobster is like my favorite thing. And yet, in the Old Testament, that would be unclean. So we're grateful for the freedom Jesus has given us. We're grateful that He's allowed some really good things to be available to us for our enjoyment. And I just don't see any problem at all with that, Brian. So, again, it's not a matter of opinion, 50-50. What does the word say? To whom was God speaking? And he's speaking to different people in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. It's that simple. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. If you have questions about the Bible, you can send them to Pastor Ron and he'll answer them on the air or reply directly to you. Email your questions to PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Today is day three of Jesus' Passion Week. Now, obviously... We're going back a couple of thousand years. But I think it's instructive and beneficial for all of us to sort of think about uh, what Jesus occupied himself with in the last week of life. I shared with the church on Sunday that my friends and I, when I was a boy growing up, we'd play this game. What would you do if you only had a week to live? Well, with Jesus, we don't have to guess. And so this was day three. In the morning, Jesus and his disciples returned to Jerusalem. Back at the temple, the religious leaders were upset because Jesus had established himself as a spiritual authority. They were always asking for signs and wonders. And they organized uh, an ambush with the intent to place him under arrest. But as always, Jesus evaded their traps and pronounced harsh judgments. And he called them Blind guides. He called them whitewashed tombs. 
He looked at the outside and he thought, well, you look religious, you look godly, but on the inside it's just nothing but decaying bones. And we can imagine almost the smell that that would have produced for Jesus. Later in the afternoon, Jesus left the city, went with his disciples to the Mount of Olives. And this is the site overlooking Jerusalem where Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse. Mark chapter 13, Matthew chapters 24 and 25, Luke chapter 21, where Jesus spoke about uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and then the end of the age, um, eschatology, end times events. Um, And he talked about his second coming. The final judgment that was coming. Now Jesus, imagine how broken hearted he was. We know that he looked out over Jerusalem. It's if you, if you only knew that I'd come to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. But remember, Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. Jesus would also know, and this would add to his heartbreak, that this was the day, Tuesday. Day three, where Judas negotiated with the Sanhedrin to betray Jesus. 30 pieces of silver. Amazing, heartbreaking, thrilling. Jesus' entire last week was to demonstrate his passion for you and for me, for the Joy set before him. He endured the agony of the cross. He did it for you. And he did it for me. Here's another question, this time anonymous. Um, She says, I'm a black woman who wants to know how a Christian should view movements like BLM and deal with issues of police Brutality. You know, it's a timely question, especially with the trial currently. I mean, testimony going on um, um, right now this week on the on the um, murder case against the Minneapolis police officer uh, who murdered George Floyd. Uh, you know, I'm 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 a pro cop guy, but uh, anybody who watched that tragedy um, has to come away with. Um, the understanding that an egregious wrong occurred. And and we are people of accountability, we who are on the conservative side, and he needs to be held accountable. Um, I'm not a black woman. I'm married to one, but I'm not a black woman. So uh, I, I can't tell you how to view movements like BLM and deal with issues of police brutality. What I can tell you is this. With your Bible and the Holy Spirit that lives in you, Jesus will give you his heart. Jesus will give you his heart. Now, here's the problem with Black Lives Matter. It's not just a saying. Of course, Black Lives Matter. Everybody matters to God. And any form of racism, any form of prejudice is a grievous sin against God. But what has happened with Black Lives Matter is that the fair and honest statement has been replaced with an organization 
that promotes a completely ungodly view of the world. They are enemies of God. They're enemies of the family. They're enemies of everything, that, not everything, but most things that we would hold near and dear. Um, they have their own agenda. And, and because Black Lives Matter is so anti-God, then we who are believers ought to view them from that antithetical position. And we can't endorse them. Uh, we have to distance ourselves from them. All the while affirming, of course, the centrality of the message. You know, with, with the, the world that we live in and the way the world has been here in this country for uh, the, the last couple of years at least, um, we understand the heat we get when somebody says Black Lives Matter and we say All Lives Matter. We understand that. But remember, as Christians... You are a Christian before you're black. You're a Christian before you're a woman. As Christians, we have to agree with our Christ. And he doesn't see race. He simply doesn't see race. So I think we can affirm equality. We can affirm justice. We can affirm a view of prejudice that it is always Without exception, it is always sin and breaks the heart of God, all the while distancing ourselves from the political group, Black Lives Matter. Now, you asked about how to deal with issues of police brutality. Um, I think, of course, the whole world is watching this trial going on right now. Um, But what has to happen is we've got to hold um, criminals, even those who are wearing badges, we have to hold them accountable for their crimes. And I have no doubt that this police officer will be convicted. Um, I have no doubt uh, that uh, if for some reason he weren't convicted, the, the, this country would again be split in two and torn apart. Um, but we've got to hold people accountable. And if we believe as we often say, well, the huge majority of cops are really good people. They love God, some of them, and, and they, they just want to do their job and make this place a better. I think that's true. But if if we're going to indicate that that is true, then it means that when police officers step out of line, we've got to hold them accountable make sure that, that the, the, the full penalty under the law is applied to them as well. So... Um, I don't know, Anonymous, if you would like to call Paula on Thursday, she's going to be here. Uh, maybe you could see what a, another black woman thinks. But um, I, I think the, 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 the thing we have to remember is that um, in God's eyes, there's no black or white, no brown, no Asian, no Mexican, no Chinese, no foreign. Just, just we either are saved or we're not saved. And any view at odds with Jesus' view of humanity is a wrong one. And I think if we would allow Jesus to form our thoughts and then empower our actions, we would be far better off as a culture. 
Daryl asks the question that people have been arguing about for 2,000 years. He said, Pastor Ron, can you please fully explain Jesus emptying himself in Philippians chapter 2? That's a kenosis. That's the theological term, the kenosis of God. Um, Jesus, uh, this is hard to understand, Daryl, because we immediately think, well, if he emptied himself, he, he stopped being God. He didn't stop being God ever, not for a moment. God cannot die. And when Jesus the man died, um, Jesus, who was God, never ceased to exist. That's why as soon as Jesus gave up the Spirit, then Jesus began as as the Son of God, who is God the Son. He descended in the lower parts of the earth. He preached a, a victory proclamation uh, to those who were being held captive, and he took the captives in his train to heaven. Um, that's him, that's That's why he did it. But emptying himself, I think it best be explained simply this way. Jesus was God, and he didn't consider equality as God or with God something to be held on to. Literally, he let it go. Some people say he laid it aside. Um, what he really laid aside was the privilege, the power Um, the ability to act independently as God. He laid all of that aside when he came to earth. Now, clearly he laid aside his his deity from from the position in heaven. Jesus was, um, at one moment, receiving the worship of angels in heaven, and in the very next instant, he was in the womb of a teenage girl. And in Jesus' whole life, you will never see him use his power for his own benefit. You will never see Jesus in the Gospels acting independently from his Father in heaven. He said, I always do. And by the way, he said, I always and only do what I see my Father do. And I only say what I hear my Father say. So Jesus never had an opinion. Every utterance, he is the, the exact representation of God. Every utterance was from the heart of God. And yet, he never used being God to benefit himself, ever. So he considered the quality of God not to be held on to, but became a human so that he could die for the sins of other humans. And Daryl, I think that's as complicated as it needs to be. And I think sometimes uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones has a great little book on this. That's a lie. Martin Lloyd-Jones never had a little book in his life. They're all huge, huge volumes of things. But but he's he's got one of the best explanations of the kenosis of God uh, I've ever read. So... Um, you can look up Martin Lloyd-Jones. But but I don't think we need to get tied up in it. I think it's just Jesus was God. He loved you and he loved me so much. He loved his father so much he would be obedient. And he left all of that beside him. He left it all behind in order to come and experience the world from a human perspective. So that's what he did. 
He did it for you. He did it out of obedience to his Father. And to Jesus, nothing else but pleasing his Father mattered at all. Thank you, Daryl. Hope that helps. Oh, here's a question I said I wouldn't get to. I thought it was a little farther down my list. It's from Alex. He said, I heard a pastor say that Easter is more needed now than ever in our country. What did he mean? I'm not exactly sure, Alex, because I, I don't know who this was and I didn't hear it myself. But my guess is that what he meant was having uh, literally been robbed of Easter last year, that this is a time where people can once again gather um, celebrate the holiest day on the Christian calendar. And I think probably what he meant was a return to normalcy, even if it's just for that one day. Alex, last year for Easter services, we had nine people in our building, all of them involved in putting the, the services online our our video team, our audio teams, our, um, our, our our condensed worship team, the three Max and um, um, Paula was here and and uh, Sam was here for doing announcements and of course I was there and um, it was really sad. Now Easter's not a sad day; it's a wonderful day, but it was it was we all kind of looked like wow, this just is so weird. And I probably would guess that this pastor was saying um, Christians need an opportunity to take a deep breath again and just say, okay, it's back to normal. I was talking to a, a pastor today, um, California, and, and you know, the government still won't let them meet. Now, many are meeting uh, in violation of the the health code legislations, but there are far more churches that aren't meeting than are, and I think many of those churches, Alex, are going to be unwilling to miss another Easter. It has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with crowds. It's just we're preaching the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. The, the the core tenet of our faith. And um, I think it's time to talk about good things again. I'm tired. I'm sure many people are tired of talking about COVID-19. We're tired of all of the chaos in the world, all of the division. And this coming Sunday, as we gather for Easter... It's going to be all and only about one thing, and that is they killed a man who said he was God. And three days later, he proved the validity of his statements by coming to life. The angel said to Mary Magdalene, why are you looking for the living among the dead? In other words, a tomb is a funny place to be looking for somebody who's alive. And, and I think, Alex, that, that uh, Easter's important. I wouldn't say it's needed now more than ever. I think Easter, the resurrection story, is needed every day in our country. I think as Christians, we need to remember that because of that empty tomb, 
nothing can separate us from the love of God. Because of that empty tomb, if God is for us, who can be against us? We need to hear those messages again. I'm going to talk about transformations. Easter, I usually focus in on the people in the story. And and, and I, I like to share what an empty tomb meant for them. And uh, I hope in doing so, uh, I'm, I'm going to be encouraging a whole bunch of people here at Calvary Chapel on Sunday. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate the question. Sam, not my producer Sam, another Sam, wants to know, what do you think, what do I think, is the state of the church in the United States and the world is right now? Um, Sam, I think it's really sad. Um, Pathetic is a word that comes to mind, or pitiful. Um, The state of the church is compromised. I think the state of the church in the United States in particular, and it's the only place I can speak with any authority about, I think the state of the church is is at best lukewarm. We all know what Jesus said about lukewarm Christians and lukewarm churches. Um, I think the church in the United States is chasing the culture rather than the culture chasing the church. I think it's just upside down. So much of the professing church is now chasing woke theology. Let's see how far left we can get and still be saved. And the one thing that should never be any different is the church. No matter where you go to church, if you go to what is professing Christian church, you should be able to go in and fellowship with and pray with like-minded brothers and sisters. I think there should be active worship in that church. I think there should be a pastor who opens a Bible and teaches it and teaches it. We do it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. There are other ways to teach it that are just as effective. But what we've done is we've, as a church, been chasing the world, trying to emulate the world and attract people from the world. Church is not to be a carnal exercise. I mean, think about it. We have churches that won't preach about sin because it makes people uncomfortable. By the way, that's not a church that belongs to Jesus. But they call themselves and are recognized as a church. We put on good shows. On a lot of stages, there will be famous singers or musicians. Big bands and light shows or fog machines. Churches is supposed to be a place for entertainment. The word is going to be watered down. And that indicates, Sam, just how pitiful the state of the church is. We've got to decide what we're going to do about it. 
we got to decide what we're going to do about it. That's the best I can do with that. Sad thinking about those things. Last question of the day. This is from Oliver. He says, uh, I believe the Bible is true, but sometimes have doubts. How do I battle those doubts? Uh, Oliver, sometimes everybody has doubts. And, and even if the doubts aren't coming from within, they're coming from without. The enemy brings them because, as I said uh, in the first half of this program today, um, the devil's always whispering in your ear, did God really say? Oh, how do you know you can trust the Bible? How do you know it's the Word of God? How do you know Jesus is real? All those questions, they cause doubts. So the way we battle those doubts is we have to make a decision. I think the first step in in making a decision is identifying the source of those doubts. Believe me, the Holy Spirit will never say, did God really say? The Holy Spirit will never say, well, you know, I don't think the Bible really meant that when it said that. So we've got to make a decision. Do we believe what is written? I don't have time today, Oliver, but over the years, I've said it many, many times, that was the one issue I had to settle as a new Christian before I could even move forward with Jesus at all. Once it was settled, once I determined that this really was God's word, and I could believe every word of it literally, that was when I got to the place where I never had any doubts about my salvation after that. I never had any doubts about the validity of the Word of God. Now, when the enemy would whisper those doubts at me, I would just say, ah, I know the source of that. That's the enemy who wants to lie, to kill, to steal, to destroy. And then I could take Paul's advice, where he says, we take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. And it's in that moment when the doubt comes where you make the decision. I believe the Bible. I believe what's written. I'm not going to ask that question anymore. In other words, settle the issue once forever. And then when the enemy comes and tries to make you doubt all over again, um, you will have been prepared to deal with the doubt when it comes. I said I'm doing spiritual warfare on Friday nights. Uh, Not this Friday, but we'll pick up again a week from Friday. Um, in Ephesians chapter 6. And I said, doubt when it's grown up becomes fear. And the devil's patient. That's what he's trying to do with these little doubts that he's depositing into your brain and into your heart. He's trying to make you fearful. And that's when you got to decide that, you know what? Jesus, you've never lied. You can't lie. I believe you. Done. That settles it. And Oliver, that's the only way I know to deal with doubts. You have to decide, do you really believe what the Word has said? Jesus did. It is written, he said, over and over. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Thank you for the calls. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. May the Lord bless you and keep you and smile upon you today. God bless. I'll see you tomorrow, 4 o'clock. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. 
The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.